was really liking what the panel was saying this morning about indie publishers and indie authors being really concerned with content and quality, whereas the big six or the big five or the big three and a half or whoever they are in New York is more concerned with the author platform. And what I see as far as longevity for indie publishers and indie authors is really the value of editorial content. That's uh, Cynthia Frank of Cypress House Publishing. I spoke with Cynthia during IBPA's Publishing University 2018 in Austin, Texas. Cynthia has been an indie publisher for some 30 years now and has obviously learned a lot, and she shares some of her accumulated wisdom with us today. But first, let me welcome you again to Inside Independent Publishing. Thanks very much for streaming in. I'm an independent publisher, and I'm your host, Peter Goodman. Inside Independent Publishing comes to you from IBPA, the Independent Book Publishers Association. IBPA's mission is to lead and serve the independent publishing community through advocacy, education, and tools for success. For more about IBPA and how it can help you be a better publisher and sell more books, whatever kind of publisher you are, go to ibpa-online.org. One of the things we want to do on this podcast is answer some of your publishing questions Um, Here is one from the question archive at IBPA, which you can access online. And the question goes as follows. Uh, Should I put the price of my book on the cover or not? My book is a hardcover, 320-page nonfiction history book with lots of research and illustrations. It will retail for $39.95. It does not have a dust cover, but rather the artwork, bio, ISBN number, etc. are printed on the front and back covers. I'm weighing the pros and cons of putting the $39.95 price on the book cover. Perhaps you can help me with that. If I do put the price on the book, I could also include a barcode. Uh, Thanks for that question. Um, Julie Merkett of Satya House says, in reply, she says, unless you are sure you're only going to be hand-selling from your website or in person, you should have the price and a barcode printed on the back cover. You can always sell the book for less than the printed price. There really is no downside to having the price and barcode printed. The upside is that you increase the possibility of more outlets for sales. Uh, Thank you very much for that answer. And I would simply add that trade accounts like retailers and wholesalers insist on barcodes with pricing. And they won't even process your book or they'll charge you extra, maybe 25 cents per book or more to a fixed label so they can get the book into their, into their own system. Uh, now, if you have a question for me or anyone at IBPA, just contact us on the IBPA site, ibpa-online.org, or message us on Twitter using the handle at IBPA. Be sure to put the word podcast in the message so your question gets to the right place. Now, in uh, early April of 2018, I attended IBPA's annual publishing university. Uh, This year is held in Austin, Texas. Uh, Fabulous day and a half filled with publishing information. And while there, I was able to speak to nearly a dozen experts and publishing industry leaders. Today's podcast features one of them, Cynthia Frank. Uh, I'm here at PubU 2018 in Austin, Texas, and my guest today is Cynthia Frank. She is president of QED Press uh, and also Cypress House and Lost Coast Press, and you're located in Fort Bragg, California. 
up in the north, that's, that's the name Lost Coast, I guess. Yes. Yeah. The so, Lost Coast is just north of us. It's where Highway 1 turns in from the coast. Right. And uh, what happens if you if you go farther north? What's up there? Well, you can take a road called the Usall Road if you have a four-wheel drive, and you can get out to Shelter Cove and some amazing beaches and old homesteads, and it's it's a spectacular wilderness area and place to camp and Worth hike. a visit, but absolutely. start in Fort Bragg. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, plug the uh, hometown then. So you've got QED Press, Cypress House, Lost Coast Press. Uh, those are are those three completely different companies? They're different, different they're different imprints. Um, QED Press is primarily uh, health, healing, and medical titles. And Cypress House is uh, nonfiction. Lost Coast Press, we do fiction and memoir. And uh, is the business model for each press pretty much the same? Yeah, yeah. It's so pretty much the same. It helps, us, helps us market a little bit uh-huh. differently. We used to have slightly different distribution networks. Depending, but now that we we work with Ingram and with Baker and Taylor and the library jobbers, Broad Art, Coots, Emory Pratt, Follett Library Resources, and, and a bunch would of you, others. Would you consider yourself a uh, traditional publisher? Is that your? We're a combination. We are a royalty press, and we also do a lot of work for hire for other presses and for authors. We help authors start their own press. Um, we assist existing publishers with editorial components, cover design, uh, developmental editing, copy editing, uh, hook them up with the right printer if they have uh, specifications and they're not sure exactly what what printer would be the, or book manufacturer would be the, the right fit for their specs. And you've been up in Fort Frank for quite a while. 30 years. Okay, so 30 years ago, there was no internet, there was no easy way. Now, I presume now, you, you can. it's easy to deal with people who aren't in Fort Bragg right. area. Everything's right. done electronically. But back in the day, how did you manage all this phone from such a remote location? Phone and fax. And I, I think the first fax machine we bought cost almost $1,800. It was this behemoth that sat on the front desk and uh, worked on thermal paper. Uh, but yeah, it, it, one of our first big titles was by a former New Mexico senator. And it was a book on uh, world polity, world fe- federalism. And he hadn't been able to get it published other places. Um, my husband, our senior editor, is uh, very politically minded, and he said, let's do it. And somehow we ended up on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle review section. So we thought, well, this can't be hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Let's make more yeah, books. Let's do this again, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and when's the next time? When the, um, after that, you got on the front page of the review section. A, a few years later, we got, um, well, we got a whole page on the inside uh, on a book that was a memoir by a woman who'd been a Navy wave. And um, she had gotten her PhD in anthropology and archaeology and then was told to go home and make babies because um, they'd never put her out in the field. And she said, well, the heck with that noise and joined the Navy waves and ended up doing um, training films for um, the armed forces, including... uh, 
how to avoid shark attacks and all kinds of wild and woolly things. And then um, when she got married after the war, she and her husband spent many, many years making Encyclopedia Britannica films. Mm. So she was absolutely fascinating mm. to work with. Um, as a, 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 when we were sending out the pre-publication review copies of her book, Pat Holt was one of the editors, the main editor at the book review section in the Chronicle. And I kept following up via phone. She said, I didn't get the book. I didn't get the book. So after like the fourth time we had sent a book, I wrapped it up in a box, um, wrapped it in birthday paper with lots of pretty ribbons and a card, and she got it. As apparently <laughs> the people in the mailroom had been snagging the book and taking it home to yeah, read. Yeah, we had that same experience, right? Um, what is your... Uh so you are in Fort Bragg, like I said. I, when I say remote, I don't mean it's like a backwoods town. It's actually a lovely town <laughs> on the coast with a great, at least one great brewery that I know of, the yep. North Coast Brewing. North Coast Brewing. Uh, makes uh, Brother Thelonious, which uh, should not be missed, I think. It's one of Absolutely. Great, yeah. And Brother Thelonious beer is used as a fundraiser right. for uh, music and jazz education and for funding the Sequoia Room, which has some of the most spectacular live jazz on the West Coast. Ah. Very intimate, beautiful And you're involved theater. in the music scene up in Fort Bragg, too, Somewhat, right? yeah, uh -huh. yeah. I've In my 26th season as the conductor of the Mendocino Women's Choir, which you're is a conductor. community choir. Yeah. You choose the music too. Uh, we have a programming committee. Ah, I, I have, see. I have, uh -huh. I have rights of first refusal. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I'm going to be bored, or My I think they're going fast, to be right, 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 right. or, right, or right. if I think it's too difficult, because we're we're a non-audition choir. This year, we have uh, 38 members, and we range in age from 10 to 82. So we have to make a careful match for what we can accomplish. And when you're not doing that, of course, you uh, you're. Kind of, kind of an active traveler, right? You, you go out to a lot of events, maybe not as much as you used to. Uh, or are you still... Uh, you mean book events? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I do uh, Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association show, Northern California Independent Booksellers Association show. Um, I used to do BEA. This will be my first time not going oh, to book expo. Okay, well, let's talk about that then. So, Because a lot of people listening to this podcast are probably wondering, should I go to BEA? Should I not go to BEA? IBPA just recently right. changed this policy right. on attendance there. This is the first year you're not going. Why not? Well, for the last 10 years, I've been doing the Rights Center, the International Rights Center at mm -hmm. BEA. And I've been able to put together a lot of uh, publishers and translation contracts and subsidiary rights contracts. And up until this last year, they were... It was a very productive show, and, and the, the folks there at Book Expo were very accommodating. This last year, they really fell down on the job, not just on the show floor, which is one of the major reasons IBPA stopped, but um, the right center, we had not good signage instead of three staff people to help help book appointments and, and um, keep things focused. We had one um, there was no secured storage. Instead of six computers, there was one that hardly ever worked. They didn't even have a, a, a regularly working power strip for people to load their devices. Uh, one of the women from, from one of the large publishers had the table next to me, and she was basically cursing under her breath for the whole show. She said, I'm ne we're never coming back. 
this is absurd. Uh, do you think that was, uh, I take it you do not believe that was an anomaly, that you, you feel that that was a message that was being sent? I think like, it was definitely a message. It was a message that they have changed their focus so much for Book Expo that they're heading toward making it a much more retail-oriented show, a much more um, book con. They're heading, heading toward toward blending the two, and, I, and they don't really fit. The previous year or, or the year before that was when they had first added book con as the last day. And book day. con is the weekend when they're selling. Right. right? When it's open to the public, basically. Right, right. And so one of the first years that they did that, I was uh, a co-panelist with Robin Cutler from Ingram Spark and a couple of other people, and we were downstairs, and a lot of the folks who wanted to come to our panel couldn't get there because all of the book con folks had had packed the aisles it was um, standing room only as they were waiting in line to get all of, all of their freebies so it just it lost its focus for mm -hmm. us mm -hmm. and that's what I saw also with how the IBPA uh, pavilion was treated instead of uh, being both on on both sides of an aisle with good signage they were sort of I don't know, out in the... It felt like the hinterlands. Yeah, I mean, didn't they split up the, the Javits Center so that if you weren't going to be in BookCon, you were kind of on the other right, side of the right. wall? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so a lot of people uh, did feel left out. Yeah. Um, so you're not you're not going to, uh, to book... Would you say that the BEA is still maybe worth it for someone to go and gawk and kind of see what the industry looks like exactly exactly it's a gr it's a gr i think it's a great place for orientation i would not ever recommend that a startup press rent a booth which is enormously expensive mm -hmm. and pins you in the booth um, if you're going to to really meet and greet and see who the players are and really try to understand what's going on then i think you need to be able to move around and you know, have your business cards, have your have your sell sheets, and power schmooze with as many yeah. people as you can at all levels, whether it's media or exclusive distributors or wholesalers or the um, the trade publications, uh, other publishers, uh, taking a look at how people are handling their trade dress or their cover design, what kinds of bindings. I, I mean, there, there's going to be printers there. Uh, the education component can be really, really good. Everything from movies to metadata to BISAC categories to uh, what the trade reviewers think the next buzz right, books are going to right. be. So kind of... Uh Absorbing the zeitgeist uh, in yeah. a sense, but probably not meeting up with too many people who are actually going to sell your book. How much of a challenge do you find it now to work with uh, independent bookstores? There are fewer of them than they used to be, but the ones that have survived are stronger. Well, than there's they used actually to be. a resurgence, according uh, to the American Booksellers Association. You know, for a while, the 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 numbers of books indie bookstores plunged, but now they're regaining a footing. They're, why do you think that is? Assuming it's true, I think partially because of Amazon, partially because of the decline of Barnes and Noble, the loss of some of the other big chains. Hastings went down. Um, I think that the, uh, there are a number of what what would you call them? When you Folk. say because of Amazon, I, I, let me just clarify. Um, 
you're saying that because of Amazon, independent booksellers are stronger? No. Well, I think what happened is that they became savvier. Uh, they okay. they started uh, the boon that independent bookstores bring to readers is that they really curate their content and they train their staff and they have great customer service. So if you go into your corner bookshop, they'll remember what you last read. They'll be able to say, well, if you really liked this book, then you might like these three others. Um, Or you can walk in and say, you know, I I, want to read something new. And they'll guide you to something that's really juicy. Uh, whereas what Amazon has seven, eight million different titles, it's really hard to drill down. It's hard to just browse. I, I mean, Amazon will offer that. If you like this, you'll like this. And then there, there's all the uh, Amazon ads. And yeah, stuff but you got to start somewhere. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And you can go sort of go down the, down the rabbit hole. But I think that there's a lot of independent bookstores that are really focusing. Like there's a mystery shop mm-hmm. and there's p- the stores that do romance. And they've started building their uh, websites and their social networking. And um, they're just savvier. They're just. Do, do you think, though, that uh, an independent press could survive without Amazon these days? I know some that do. I I, I was just talking to a gentleman last week. Um, he he wanted our assistance with redesigning the cover of one of his bestsellers, uh-huh. and um, I said, "Well, is it up on Amazon? I can I can take a look at it." And he said, "Well, it's only there with the marketplace sellers, but I don't sell to Amazon. I don't work with distributors. I, he works with specialty sales of some kind. I, I don't even really know all of the details. And specialty it's a medical sales. book. Yeah. Was this book in a very specific topic, like uh, yeah, medical? Nutri- oh, medical. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it wouldn't necessarily be in a trade bookstore anyway. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what I'm seeing more and more is that specialty sales can really be Mm -hmm. a boost. One one of our own bestsellers sells really well in stationery and lingerie stores, Dancing Naked in Fuzzy Red Slippers. It doesn't (laughs) sell well in bookstores or even on Amazon because it's difficult to categorize. It's Mm -hmm. a little bit memoir. It's a little bit humor. It's a little bit poetry. And so they don't know what shelf to put it on. But in a lingerie store next to the the red booties, it works great. Uh, Do you publish any uh, fiction at all? Yeah. Yeah, we do. And so... uh, how how is uh, how has that been? Is that uh, difficult to get into to get advance orders from independent booksellers? Well, I much rather go with genre fiction. Historical fiction has been the most successful for us. Uh-huh. Um, the last Aloha, I think we've sold about thirty five thousand copies, and that's an historical novel set at the turn of the eighteen hundreds into the nineteen hundreds, um, and that sells well in. Uh, airport stores, the destination uh, airport cities. And, and how long? How long ago did you publish that? It first came out in two thousand nine. Okay, uh, and so so what did you do to? I mean, thirty five thousand copies is a is fabulous. Uh, how did you? Uh, well, the author has a it? the author has a good website. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a wonderful speaker. She lives in Hawaii. 
She uh, is tied in with a number of the, I think they're called hulaos, the, the groups that do the native hu- the hula. Uh-huh. And she's brought hula dancers to readings. We were able to get distribution as, as well as with Ingram and Baker and Taylor with Booklines Hawaii, which sells into um, the Hawaii, the PXs and the CVSs and all, all around the islands so there. So most of the sales probably came from Hawaii than the 30 A lot of them, but days. also the destination cities, the cities that are the airport hubs that feed into Hawaii. Uh-huh. And so we, the book was placed in a lot of, of airport stores. Uh, years ago, the Sacramento airport had five family-owned bookstores, and we sold a heck of a lot of copies just, just through there. Now it's more Hudson News and mm-hmm. the News Group, and I'm shy of getting a lot of returns, and both of those companies tend toward right. higher amounts right. of returns. And you, and you reach Hudson News through your distributor? Or do you sell directly to them? You would sell directly to them. You'd have to negotiate a contract with Hudson News or, or the the news group in in that way. We've also worked with Trophy uh, uh-huh. as far as airport placement in like the Atlanta airport. Is that uh, how do you find uh, dealing with companies like that? Do you have to? Is it all cut and dry? Or no, it it's really? a lot of care and feeding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to You got it helps to know somebody to to call and. Well, yeah, sometimes you have to really drill down with the, the specialty sales. And uh, for instance, we, we work with a number of clients who have what I call critter books, whether they're about dogs or cats mm-hmm. or pets in general, horses. Um, and there used to be a, a wholesaler called Global Distribution that fed into Petco and PetSmart. And then they got bought up by Lumina Media, and then Lumina Media divested and they sent their magazines one direction and their uh, books in another direction. I'm still sort of down the rabbit hole there trying to figure out, okay, we used to have a good connection with global distribution. Now how can we hook up with the the new folks? So uh, as you yourself said, you've been doing this for 30 years Mm -hmm. and uh, I think you've been a member of uh, IBPA and before that PMA and before uh, that, Pascal. And before that, Pascal. <laughs> yeah, so you've, uh, I won't say you've seen it all, but you've seen a lot of it. Um, what are your thoughts about uh, the future of independent book publishing in America? Ooh, well, I was really liking what the panel was saying this morning about indie uh, publishers and indie authors being really concerned with content and quality, whereas... Um, the big six or the big five or the big three and a half or whoever they are in New York is more concerned with the author platform. And what I see as far as longevity for indie publishers and indie authors is really the value of editorial content. And that's where, that's where I like to focus. I mean, you can have a great cover, um, but if your content isn't good and strong and well handled, then maybe you'll get some sales over a little while, but the the title can't have that kind of longevity because those flaws will show through eventually. So is that uh, kind of a way of diffusing the uh, the stigma that it attaches to independent publishing as still being somehow non-professional, even though we all know that's not we're true? Pat- yeah, we're patchy. You know, yeah, we, patchy, not, right. not, that's a good way of saying it. Not, all of, not yeah. all of us get it, yeah. you know, that... that 
Um, not every Random House title is a winner either. You're not kidding. Yeah. You're not kidding. I remember when the Harry Potter books first came out and I was reading them aloud to our younger son, and I'm sure we had like the eighth or ninth printing. It wasn't like a first edition book. And there were constant typos <laughs> in one of the volumes. I thought, holy cats, yeah. you know, do they have nobody who, who's going over this? And a, a friend of ours, Toinette Lippi, uh, used to have her own imprint at Knopf. Uh, she did Bell Tower and they did a lot mm-hmm. of the Stephen Levine books who dies and at a certain point they said uh we've cut your staff you no longer have an assistant or a proofreader and um that i think those kinds of cuts in quality and infrastructure um helped her decide to quit and retire from that yeah yeah so now she's taken up chinese brush painting and she sells her paintings back to uh Cannot for book covers and Presumably publishes without, her with, own with books. No typos in right. the Chinese brush painting. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, uh, I guess uh, the the cynic in me wants to say, well, so what? Because uh, you feel like people's reading standards have declined. People are used to absorbing information very quickly. They read a paragraph at a time. There's typos everywhere because blogs are not vetted. Or, and but isn't that more true for nonfiction than for fiction? I mean, for fiction, you want a story that you become part of and involved oh, I in. Think that's, I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Fiction tends to get a lot more uh, care over time. Unless right. it's just something right. being cranked out as a potboiler. And I think the flaws in fiction block the reader. You know, if it's not well edited, or mm-hmm. if if the syntax is wonky or the point yeah. of view changes or something like that, it, it prevents the audience from sinking into the story. Whereas if it's a nonfiction book and all they're trying to do is, you know, how how do I, you know, splice this cable or how do I make that sandwich or, well, or that's, whatever that's the it thing, is. isn't it? I mean, nonfiction you can sell as uh, filling a need. Uh, whatever it may be, fiction is much more discretionary. You know, for every right. historical novel, there's you know a thousand more right. science fiction, right. the, the same thing. Um, yeah, the editorial quality is important, but that you only get to appreciate that once you're into the book. It's like getting the book in right. the hands of the reader in the first place, and that's a real challenge when it comes to fiction. If you're an unknown fiction writer. Good luck to you. Why right. should people read you? And especially difficult if you're doing literary fiction, right. because there, I mean, what hook do, do you have to hang hang it on? That, Even the that. established ones are exactly. having trouble. You know, yeah. maybe yeah. selling four or five thousand copies is a great accomplishment, but that's not enough to keep a, a large publisher happy. Right. Right. Yeah. It's t- It's it's really really yeah. tough. And and having that voice. I mean, there's a lot of authors who are wonderful wonderful writers. But they don't present well. Mm-hmm. They, it's not. There may be not somebody that you would, as a as a publicist, right. that you would send on tour or put on the radio or put on television. They're not mediagenic. Right. 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 They they need to be home writing more books. <laughs> right. Or have a publicist, and of course, I mean, hiring a publicist is going to cost you three thousand dollars a month or so, right? right? So right. it can get very expensive to get your message out there. Well, it's a tough business. We all know that. And you've been doing this for 30 years, so you must be really smart. (laughs) (laughs) Dedicated. (laughs) Dedicated, right. 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 Yeah. We try to to learn from our our mistakes, you know, to to, uh, learn how best to communicate with authors that 
the editorial process is necessary and we're helping them match their intent with their effect. It's not about changing their their voice or altering, altering their, their point of view, but trying to keep them on the road of connecting with, with the author, Great. with the reader, excuse me. Well, if you're, if you're an author and you're looking for some uh, wise, uh, sage counsel and perhaps some help delivering your message, uh, by all means, contact Cynthia Frank. Where is the best place to reach you? On your website? And what the is website, the- cypresshouse.com, cypress like the tree, and uh, 800-773-7782, which is 800-PRESS-73-778. 773-7782. Yes, press 82. I will put that in the notes. So Thank you. <laughs> you don't have to write that down. Yeah. And uh, what was it? Cypresshouse.com? Cypresshouse.com. Okay. And I am Cynthia at Cypresshouse.com. Very good. Well, Cynthia Frank, thank you very much for coming by today. Thank you. A pleasure. We can all learn so much by listening to people like Cynthia with her several decades of publishing experience. Just imagine the number of problems that she's had to solve over the years and how much has changed and how much has not changed since she first started out. And I should say that I'm right there with her. Uh, Cynthia exemplifies, if nothing else, survival in a world where survival is not easy and certainly it's not assured. At the beginning of the interview, she mentioned how, in addition to having a publishing program at QED Press, Cypress House, and Lost Coast Press, she also provides services to authors and to other publishers, editorial, design, consulting, maybe being something of a fixer to help authors out if they're stuck at some point. Your publishing brain over the years, uh, you know, really becomes like a valuable piece of factory equipment. Printers abhor downtime when the press isn't running and producing revenue. I'm not suggesting you never take a vacation, but you can take that marvelous and high-functioning tool inside your cranium and, you know, basically hire it out to others when you're not working on your own publishing projects. Many publishers have consulting gigs on the side or they find extra work to bring in extra revenue. You can advertise your services in your local paper, on Craigslist, maybe at your local publishing group or club or even at IBPA. I personally have had a couple of occasions here in California where people needed books or catalogs printed and, you know, they really didn't know the first thing about how to find a printer or how to submit a job or anything like that. Well, you and I know all that stuff, all those skills that others don't possess. Think of all the ways to make your expertise work for you and generate extra revenue so that you can keep on doing what you really like, which is developing content and publishing books for others to read and to enjoy. Uh, Who knows, at some point, maybe that side business will even become your main business. Uh, If you'd like to comment on this podcast, please tweet to me using the handle at Peter Goodman or at IBPA. Uh, Just a reminder, if you're already a member of IBPA, we appreciate your support and be sure and let us hear from you. If you'd like to learn more about IBPA or considering joining, check out the IBPA website at ibpa-online.org. Thanks again for listening to Inside Independent Publishing. Keep your nose in that book, and as my bosses in Japan used to say, let's have publishing fun. <laughs>